Outdoor Edge knows that providing a freezer full of meat is part of the reason we all hunt. And what better way to bring it full circle than to process your own wild game? Outdoor Edge provides a full lineup of traditional and replaceable blade hunting knives and complete wild game processing kits to bring your wild game from the field to the freezer. Visit OutdoorEdge.com and at checkout, enter the discount code N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back. Housekeeping. Uh, the first thing I want to mention is next week I will be in attendance at the Field Woods. It's Woods Wildlife Show in Canandaigua. It will be in the notes. I'll be doing keynote speaking both days. I will have a booth there. Stop by, visit me. If you're in the New York area, in that area, come and visit me, Rochester, Syracuse, Buffalo. Please stop by, visit me. I'd love to meet people that listen to the podcast and follow this. Um, it'd be great. Second piece of it, if you can go in and, and review this this uh, podcast, it'd, it'd be much appreciated. I've uh, been asking more folks to do that. Uh, I just want to continue to push the trend of this being kind of one of the lead habitat hunting podcasts in the country. And and that's where we're at today. Um, so it's been great for me to kind of get that recognition, at least internally from, uh, you know, the network that I'm on. And then part three of it, I'm excited. We've got Mark Haslam back. Now, Mark was on a podcast months and months ago, uh, talking about pine plantations. A friend of mine called me and says, why is Mark not back on your podcast? And I said, you're right. It's been too long. And, uh, since then, Mark has been writing for Meat Eater. Uh, I've been following some of his posts, and he also shot a fantastic deer just a few days ago. So we get a chance to kind of talk through, you know, his season already. He's already been successful. Also note, Rocky Burr has shot a monster buck down in Tennessee, both velvet deer. So, you know, these guys are in just, you know, they're consultants, but they're really executing and that's really critical to this podcast because not only can they teach and preach is they're getting it done in the field. So let me get Mark on. Hey Mark, how you been? I've been doing well, John. I appreciate you having me back on. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah. I'm happy to have you back and you know, I'm sorry it's been a while uh, just trying to balance a lot of things, but you've already had a good season. It's kind of just started for you. You've killed a tremendous deer. So congratulations uh, I want to talk a little bit about that today, but I want to kind of peel back this, uh, you know, this this process that you've had, because this is not the first early season deer you've killed over the years. You know, we talked about this just the other day, and you've you've found success, and I want to kind of dig into maybe your process to get to this point where you're you're able to attack deer early in the season. And kind of wipe out the maybe the anxiety that people have, you know, oh, I hope I'm going to kill during the rut. Can you kind of explain to, you know, your property, things that you've been doing over the years and maybe just some levels of success you've had just, you know, over those periods of, of time? Sure, absolutely. Absolutely. I'd love to. Um, our farm is in South Carolina. Um, it's kind of in the lower western side of the state. So we are in uh one of the game zones in South Carolina where you can start hunting August 15th. And it's primarily uh, a tree farm, uh, loblolly pine trees. We do have some long leaf, but it's primarily pine trees, and that's the main crop. Uh, you see a lot, you know, consistently through the southeast. We do have some ag fields, agriculture, that we lease out to a farmer. And we do have a number of food plots that we plant. So that's kind of, um, you know, our make up, you know, very little elevation. We have some water, some creeks and ponds and there, there are a good amount of oaks, but the oaks are generally around hedges and some areas that aren't really conducive for pine trees, um, you know, growing, growing pine. So that's the, that's our, that's our makeup. And, you know, as far as the early season um, success and yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't really 
thinking about it too much until after I shot that shot this last buck. Um, it was last Thursday morning that, you know, I, I, I it's, I, I've been, you know, able to kind of put together an early season hunt for, you know, four years now. And I think I've, I, I don't think I've, I've shot four mature, de, mo, excuse me, four mature bucks over the past four years, you know, from the opener in August to like the first week in September. And, my strategy for all those has been the exact same and, you know, we can dive into it more, but, but essentially, um, I am climbing, I'm hunting, I'm hunting mobily, which means I am walking in and kind of, you know, I know, I know the area I'm going to, uh, in the morning, but I don't have a tree picked out. I'm a climber, go in, pick, you know, pick a tree, this flush up against bedding, a bedding thicket. It might be a clear cut. Um, this is grown up wild, or it might be a clear cut that we have already replanted the pine trees and those pines are in a young state. So they're, you know, anywhere from three years to like maybe 10 or 12 years old, fixed state, way too early to thin and deer bed in those. And, you know, I, I know mornings don't get, don't get the love that they should as far as hunting until the rut comes around until that first cold front. But in the South, you know, our stress period in the south, southeast, is the summer. It's the heat. It's the ticks. It's the humidity. Maybe if there's a drought, anything like that, as opposed to it's not the winter. I mean, you know, we don't really – I mean, we might get snowfall that actually sticks once every decade, you know. So the winter is not our stress period. I mean, that's actually – a breather for us to just to kind of enjoy some nice weather for, for instance. But I say all that because if you break it down for morning hunts, the coolest part of every single day is going to be overnight. You know, it's not, you know, during the day with some, you know, uh, you know, overcast clouds, it's throughout the night. And so just historical data from not so much trail cameras, you know, trail cameras show you what they see, but hunting early season these these bucks because we can we can only shoot bucks until september 15th just to give fawns more time with the does but these bucks are out all night you know they might show up in a field an hour before dark or they might show up at 2 a.m who knows but they're gonna be out all night feeding you know trying to get that six to eight percent of their body weight you know daily and then they're gonna slip back to bedding um you know, right at first light. It might be right at first light or it could be like with an hour, hour and a half first light. And then I'm sitting there in a climber on a good trail right up against bedding. And that's, that's how it went down Thursday. And that's, um, that, that's how those, the, the past four years, that's how it's happened. So Mark, a lot of people will think that's an aggressive, aggressive tactic, but the reason I can rationalize this is specifically the cooling aspect you, you just discussed you get really warm temperatures, 80s, maybe even 90s for that matter. You know, high humidity. Those are hard to hunt conditions, period, for, for you. And the deer don't want to move. At least they don't want to move in large distances. And so you're capitalizing on those incremental movements into those bedding zones. And you're doing it at the right time. And it just seems odd for a lot of people to think about that, particularly in my area, because there's always this, this mantra of don't go after them in the morning. Don't, yeah. don't even attempt that. But the cooling temperature is a huge factor kind of in their cadence of movement. And I think a lot of people lose touch with that. And then by the way, the comfortability from a hunting side of the thing, you know, of course you're sweating during the day, but you know, it's a lot less in the morning. So from, from your standpoint, I'm sure that's an advantage for you. Oh, I mean, you're right. You're spot on hundred percent. I mean, you know, it, it's, I mean, the mornings here might be in the low seventies, um, you know, maybe high sixties, low seventies. So, I mean, it's quite frankly, it's, it, it's pleasant as opposed to, you know, in the evening right before, you know, sunset, it's going to be in the high eighties and hot and you're going to be sweating. And so, yeah, it's more so, um, it, it, it's more so, uh, it, it's more enjoyable in, in, in the morning for sure. But, you know, it's just, what I tell people is to get out, hunt mobily throughout the entire season, learn how your deer move. Because if you're sitting on a food source early season, it's going to be extremely challenging because you're going to have every deer or every turkey and wildlife that have been coming in all summer to that food source when no one's been there. 
And then all of a sudden a hunter comes and you're going to educate a lot of deer. And if you're going after a big buck, that big buck's probably not going to be the first deer that comes in that food source. So, um, that's why that's another reason why I prefer prefer mornings because when you hunt around the food sources, it is highly concentrated on deer. And if you hunt in the evenings, even if you don't pull the trigger, when you're getting down at night, odds are you're gonna educate something. And you know, the bucks down here, they are in their summer schedule, but you can bump them off very easily. I mean, I do pretty much zero glassing, like traditional kind of glassing what people talk about. Um, just because you know, if you bump one, all it takes is one deer and they just, and then, and then, and then you educate all of them because they, you know, they, they run off. And so. Well, Mark, that's, that's let's, my strategy. Let, yeah, no, that's good. I want to bark. I want to uh, back up to a couple things. So you're talking about scouting um, and then mm-hmm. I want to get into the vegetation. Then I want to talk specifically about your setup to kill this deer. Let's bump back to scouting. So you're the way your property is designed and I, I forget the exact acreage of it, but it's, Right around a thousand was was that roughly what it was? How how, um, how large is the farm? It's uh, right at nineteen hundred acres. Okay, nineteen hundred acres. Okay, so are your setups in those? I'm assuming you're doing some scouting. I'm assuming in the evenings, and you're doing it some distance away. Can you kind of maybe explain that in a little more detail? That you're finding your target deer, many target deer across the landscape, and you're kind of defining their interest zones and how they're utilizing areas. Can you kind of go through your process a little bit, maybe even specifically for this deer? So, so scouting early season like this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so, you know, I don't really do that much, like, deep scouting. Uh, and I was kind of quickly kind of go through this. I'll, 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 I'll put cameras on the food plots in, in ag fields um, to see what's coming in. And I might, you know, throughout the summer, I might put a little corn down in front of it or a salt block just to try to – for you know, usually about like seven to 10 days just to see, you know, to try to capture as many deer as I can. Okay. Like, like a survey, but I don't care what time, what time I'm capturing them on that destination food source, food plot or ag field. A lot of people like, you know, do you have any daylight photos, daylight photos, you know, got to have that daylight photo. Well, why, you know, I, that, that, that doesn't bother me. If it's, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't bother me because that, because that's not how I'm going to hunt them. I just want to know the bucks I have on my property, you know, where they're feeding and really where they're feeding at night. So so like when I get that 2 AM big buck on my food plot, that's great. I'm not worried that like I've got to get him during the daylight because I know where he's at in the middle of the night. And then I try to, then I build the hunt off of where do I think he's coming from? So then from there, I might take some, some cameras or then do some scouting and, uh, you know, not too aggressively, but try to see, try to pinpoint where they're coming from, you know, try to like back up to them. And a lot of times in the South, you just really got to look to your closest thick, dense uh, thicket as far as where they're going to bed. And that's probably where they're going to be because when I'm looking for like, you know, I don't go out and find like traditional buck beds, like what people talk about, because we, we, you know, we're in farm and pine country and there's been a lot of, um, a lot of cutting going on over the years. There's been so many pine trees that are hitting maturity and there's a lot of people cutting now. Uh, wood prices have gone up. So because of that, there's a lot of thickets, you know, we have such a long growing season down here in the South from, you know, early March all the way to the first frost in November that when you cut, when you clear cut a set, a, a section, depending on the soil, it's going to be a nasty thicket within two to three years. So, to, so usually that's where the bucks are going to be in those kind of areas. And you're, th- you're um, saying, you're saying specifically, so that age range of that, that vegetation and whatever the composition of, of that vegetation is, is you're kind of looking at that two, three, four year range of where it's going to be almost ideal, at least structure for bedding locations specifically in your region. Yeah. So, okay. So like two to three, two to three, four years is when it's going to be thick enough at the earliest stage. Yes. Thick enough, thick enough and tall enough to where you get shade because you need the shade during the day, obviously for the deer. So that's usually the earliest I'll get that state and then it can last until maybe 10 or 12 years, just depending on 
you know, the soil and at a certain point, the pines get old enough and you can see right through them. Um, they don't like them then, but, um, really it's just kind of finding those areas and I don't find the beds. I just know, you know, that clear cut thicket I'm talking about, it might be five acres or it could be 50 acres. Right. Right. And so they're going somewhere in them and I don't know exactly where, but you can probably find a good trail and try to pinpoint on a map in the aerial map. If you know, so the key is just knowing where they feed at night. So the zone of interest, this is what I define this as. So we've got data that we're recording just to make sure deer are resident. You know, you're trying to figure out age class quality, you know, not an, you know, all that stuff that's it's essential, right. To making some decisions. Then we're backing up the zone of interest. We're finding out generally what their movement patterns may be circumstantially based upon the habitat conditions, which we just described, you know, a second ago, the ideal setting, at least the ideal settings that you're seeing. And then from that, we're trying to make a decision of when to attack those deer and kind of in that process, you're just continuing to kind of monitor and collect data, obviously, to make sure that deer is still resident. Let's go into the strategy of this deer specifically. And this may mirror some of your stories from several years ago, but you made a decision and you're hunting mobile. Um, I think I saw some pictures of, of maybe the, even the location. I don't know if you posted everything exactly right, but you know, you're hunting mobile. I think you're using a climber, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're using a climber. You're going in almost... I want to say quasi blind. You don't you don't have a tree specifically picked out, but you have a an area picked out, and you're focused on a, a specific habitat type that they're most interested in, vesting time in during the day. So let's kind of go through the process of going after this deer. Was this your first hunt or second hunt, or how early was this? This was my fifth hunt. I hunted all day. I hunted twice Tuesday, twice Wednesday, and this was my fifth hunt on Thursday morning. And essentially, it started just dumping buckets an hour or two before daybreak. <laughs> Great. <And> so <laughs> I, I, yeah, exactly. I was planning on going to going somewhere completely different, just just change things up. Um, I had seen a bachelor group Tuesday night, and I tried to make a play on them Wednesday morning, and then again Wednesday afternoon. Never saw them. Um, so I said, I wanted just to switch gears, see something new, do something different, but it was raining and we're trying to watch that rain to figure out, cause it, because it was coming out heavy. I mean, I will sit out in the rain, which ultimately I did, but if it's coming out hard, I'm just not going to sit down. Um, I don't blame in my, you. <laughs> in a heavy rain, but it was starting to break up some and, um, it was starting to break up, but then it was getting, but then, but then my time was running out because I sat in the house for so long trying to figure out what I want to do. So I couldn't go. I didn't have enough time to go where I was originally planning for Thursday morning. So I figured, you know what? I'm going to go somewhere where it's like tried and true. Uh, I killed two nice bucks there in 2019. It's just a good area. Um, I don't have trail cameras over there, but I know how the deer moves. And I know where I could probably catch some bucks you know, coming back from feeding all night. And, you know, when it rains like that, what I have found in the mornings is sometimes when, when it's raining, it just delays the deer going back to bed. I don't know if they bed down where they are or, or, or what, but they don't, I have seen a lot of bucks that they get, just, they just get hung up and they get delayed coming back to bed. But the one last piece of, how I was hunting is, um, and I know we talked about this a lot on the first time I was on, but we've done, and we didn't really understand what we were doing originally. So I will preface this, that what we've done and the, the things we've, have, we've learned for habitat management just come from trial and error, but we diversify and fragment our pine forest to where there's different age class pine trees. And the reason why I say that is because you want to clear cuts of smaller sections. Um, and that creates bedding thickets. It's also good for other wildlife too. And then the other piece is you have older age class pine trees, which is, which was what I was climbing in flush up against a, a, a thicket. But that what I was climbing was like 25 year old loblaws had been thin twice, had tons of sunlight coming in and we burn it 
like every three or four years. So it's loaded with food. Deer will bed in there that, you know, the briars and everything in there can be, I mean, it can be waste chest high on you and me. And so by, by having that type of habitat right up against that bedding site, that I think is what really slows the deer down. They're out in our hub of like food plots and ag fields. And then they're going back in the pines that are thin and open where I'm climbing. And they're very relaxed. They feel safe. There's food there. There's cover. I mean, these deer just straight up on top of me because I, I couldn't see them from too far away. And so that's kind of like the last piece is that, you know, you, you need pine thickets, but then you also need to manage the pines where they're open and give the deer safety and cover and food to kind of move through. When they leave those big, big fields that they don't want to be in in daylight. You right, know? right. And I want to back you up for something. I know you're on a roll here, but I, I, want, I don't want to lose this point that you made earlier because I think this is an excellent point, um, and it says a lot about your, your uh, observation, is the rain situation that you explained earlier. You know, it's raining heavy and the deer delayed. And there's two, there's two premises that are philosophies that I have. I totally subscribe to that. So if there's a heavy rain and then that rain lightens up in the morning, you know, and, and you're already in the stand ready to catch that next, next tier movement. Absolutely a great strategy. In my opinion, number two is let's say there's a rainstorm coming. Now I'm not as heavily interested in, in, in post fronts uh, per se, uh, but post fronts tend to 10 in the morning time, may delay their movement. So they may be delayed going back into those areas to get, you know, their feeding cycle down because they know that they're going to be stuck depending on the length of that weather system. Or yeah. so, excuse me, pre I said meant to say pre-weather movement or pre-weather condition. Um, and, and then that's a strategy that you can kind of employ. Then usually, you know, there's a post movement, obviously after that weather system comes through, but it depends on the length, the total length of that movement. And it's a relationship to what you think the appropriate day-like activity may be based on those circumstances. So Mark, I just thought that was an excellent point that you brought up, not a minuscule point, like a, a very important point. So sorry to cut you off, get back into the habitat. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what, uh, I mean, that, that's pretty much the setup that we had. Do you, um, do you think in that area? So if you're coming, so let, let's actually break down. So what was the distance of your hunting location in relationship to a food source or an agricultural area? What, what was the relative distance? Um, there was a good hub system of food plots that had, a, that had a good variety of the different plantings, um, the, they started a couple hundred yards away, and there was a series of peanut fields, uh, maybe twice the distance away. So where exactly they came from, I don't know. Um, but, you know, those the ag fields and those food plots are so close together that I think – the I think these deer tend to – they just kind of hit it all, you yeah. know. Yep. They, they move around and, you know, a doe might get spooked and kind of flush them out of one field. Then, then they'll go to the next field. But, it, you know, it's relatively close. So when I'm talking about this, I actually, I'm glad you asked that because I've never really explained that. Um, it's really not that far. I mean, it might be, it might be, it might be a thousand yards or so. So, and that's one point I guess I, I, I should add in is like, you know, some years I feel confident, like this this year, we had some other hunters out there too, and I felt confident that we could probably fill two to three buck tags. And we, we ended up killing two deer. A friend of mine shot one. There was a, uh, there were two nice ones seen that there should have been a third tag filled, but that hunter w- had a bow. And he watched these two big bucks um, leave the peanut fields, do, do exactly the same thing that I described. They were going back to bedding uh, 45 minutes after daylight, but they crossed the 75 yards and he had a bow. And that's, and that's exactly why I hung with a rifle. Because uh, in our game zone, you can start hunting August 15th with a bow or rifle. Um, but, you know, some years I feel confident, you know, that, you know, in the box, and some years you don't because the box are, it sounds stupid what I'm about to say, but the box are where they are. You know, they're, yeah. they're not. They're going from A to B. They are they are hiding and they're eating. That's all they're really doing. You know, they're not really making much sign. 
you know, just, just quite yet. They're not really socializing that much except for like in their bachelor groups. So they're going to A and B. And I say that because sometimes I'll, you know, I'll set up survey cameras like late summer, you know, maybe like July. Cause usually like July, you can tell down here what a buck's going to look like for the most part, you know, big buck or whatever. But, you know, if you put out a, a mineral stump or salt leg or corn on a camera site, it doesn't mean that they're going to come pouring into and blowing the corn up. It's it, sometimes I'll have a corn just sitting on the ground from a camera for weeks because they're on their schedule. They're going to this food plot, that ag field. And then on top of that, we've gotten so much rain down here in the south this summer. I mean, it's raining like almost every single day. The, the, the vegetation is just crazy down here. I, I, I've never seen so much ragweed, I don't think, ever in, po- in pokeweed. So I say that because the, the bucks, I mean, they're going from A, A, A to B every day for the most part. It's just how they get there is going to be a little bit different, and they're not really fluctuating off those little schedules. Let me, yeah, let me ask you a little bit about this food sources. You talked about peanuts and what other food sources do you have in those localized areas that are either agriculture or, or planted uh, food plots? What, what, did, what were the, in, in this relative area that you're talking about where you killed this deer, what were they, what were the layouts there like? So uh, right now this year, uh, half the farm is cotton and half the farm is peanuts. And so it's, um, so, you know, right, you know, peanuts, Deer just blow up uh, as soon as they really come out of the ground. Yep. They eat, they eat eat the top foliage. Occasionally, they will pull the whole plant up and actually consume the peanut in the ground, which farmers don't like. Our food plots in that kind of hub system we have it's it, it, it's it's a series of fields very close together. We've got straight so- soybeans, straight sun hemp, and then we've got a mixture um, that we get from a local place up here. And it's soybeans, sun hemp, buckwheat, and two kinds of peas. Okay. And that 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 mixture I love because it's just thick and nasty. And the peas, the in, in the soybeans kind of grow around the stalks of the sun hemp, and they kind of play off each other. Um, and that can help on some bigger fields just to get some cover in there. And then of course the pine woods that have been thinned and burned and have sunlight. There's all kinds of just you know if you're maintaining some TSI. In some habitat work, you should be loaded up with briars and American beautyberry and all that stuff. I mean, ragweed, um, you know, it's just extra food. And so that that food, the pines, they can graze or browse from their bedding all the way to that destination food source. And I think that's what I mean. That that's what, without question will slow them down. Um, probably in the morning to where I can actually hunt them to where. You know, if the woods were just wide open and it was pine trees and pine straw, I'm sure most people have seen, have, have have been somewhere where no one's really maintaining a pine forest and it's just a thick pine straw carpet where there's no vegetation. Those deer will probably be skirting through those areas very quickly because there's because there's no cover. You know, there's there's no much safety. It's just pine trees and, and pine straw, and that's not really conducive really for any kind of wildlife. This story here that you're telling me and the layout and the specifics and the interest levels and just the flow, and it's almost like picture a cake, right? We've got layers of the cake from the food source, you know, the original food source that we talked about, the agricultural fields, and then we've got all these different layers and then the preferences, you know, and you're talking A to B, B to C, those movements that they're making are a little bit more regimented. And obviously, mechanically, you can control, in some cases, their movement through these areas. Let's get into the specifics of, you know, this whole layout time, what happened, how did the kill go? Let's just give me some of the details. Well, I already kind of mentioned before, it started raining uh, a good bit. Um, and, and like I said, um, I, didn't have a, I didn't have a camera in the spot, but I just know historically how deer move my property, you know, how they move, where they bed. And, uh, and when I say where they bed, there's a lot of places where they bed, but there's some better concentrated bedding areas. So that's where I like to hunt up against. And I was running, you know, short on time, you know, did I, you know, took a, took a, uh, electric bad boy buggy down the road and ditched it and got my climb. I had my climber, my rifle. And that's about it. I mean, it was still raining and, um, it was, I was within a, I was within about a hundred yards of two bucks I shot in 2019 
same type setup, uh, right? <laughs> at, right, right in that same block. But another reason why I love climbers and love hunt, hunting mobile is because another challenge. I can't speak for any other region, but 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 early season south, the wind is just so frustrating. I mean, all last week it was shifting just around the clock, around the compass. I mean, it was blowing every which direction. And sometimes if we don't have like a good kind of front that comes through of any type, the wind's not going to really blow consistent true throughout the day, especially in the mornings. Cause you know, a lot of times we'll have that dreaded calm, you know, wind prediction yeah. where you don't know what it's going to do, but you know, it's going to it's do something. And when you factor in our humidity and in, in the moisture in the air, your scent, if the wind's not blowing, just it just lingers and hangs. Yeah. Um, but thankfully, you know, we use a lot of thermocells, and whoever whoever created the thermocell back in the late '90s, that was great because you can see the little smoke, you know, coming off the thermocell, which is you know for mosquitoes and bugs. You can see where that's blowing. But anyways, walked in with my climber, and. Um, I kind of knew, you know, I, I knew the block I wanted to go into, but as soon as I got there, you know, I checked the wind at that particular site and chose a tree. And there was a, that little area, there was a cluster, there's a little cluster of oak trees that were left over the years that people didn't cut when they cut the pine trees. And so I picked the pine tree that was right up against one of those oaks. And so my climber faces the tree. That I'm, that I'm on and my bag was kind of flush up against that oak where the, where, where the branches were just all around me. So, I mean, I had excellent concealment, but one drawback was, was that little cluster of oaks that were kind of spread out over, you know, a couple of acres. They created blind spots for me because when you're climbing in, you know, 20 plus year old pine trees have been thinned, you don't have any blind spots. You might have some vegetation, that's kind of tall that, it, that a deer can hide behind even when they're standing up, but not many blind spots for trees, but those oaks create a blind spot. So um, got set up before first light and, and I had two doe groups that came through. They were actually kind of a little squirrely uh, thinking about it. They kind of ran through and I don't know if it was the, if it was the rain that caused that, but and I think it was about 7.15, which, um, you know, good bit after first light, but it was still very overcast. This, this, this buck that I shot just appeared right beside one of those oak trees that I was describing created a blind spot for me. He was just standing there. And it was one of those times where, like, he, he was 35 yards from my tree, from me, and I don't think he's looking at me, but he's looking my direction. He's facing my direction. Mm-hmm. So... I did not want to raise anything up and take a look at him because I don't want I don't want him to spot me, obviously. But thankfully, being next to that oak tree, and like, you know, if that oak wasn't there, this could have been a different situation because he went under he turned slightly and went under some oak limbs, which created a blind spot for him to where I went ahead and raised my rifle. And I've learned from I'll, I've learned from previous mistakes that if you have a buck in range, whether it's a bow or rifle range raise, well, I guess if it's a bow, maybe raise your binoculars, but if you have a rifle and he's in range, don't raise your binoculars to glass him first. Glass him to the scope. And I've learned that the hard way, that sometimes you, you just, you're going to miss the shot because he's going to be gone by the time you look at the binoculars and then pull your rifle up. So I had to scale my rifle scope down very much to actually get him in frame. And on top of that, you know, I was steaming up because I'm wearing a, um, I'm wearing a thin rain jacket, but it doesn't breathe. You know, it's a rain jacket. Yeah. So, you know, so I'm high. even though it wasn't really hot, it was just, you know, all my glass, the binoculars, the scope was fogged up. There was rain on it. I mean, I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I'm just getting rained on. So yeah. I was had to take my thumb and just wipe away the scope. And I, I could tell that he was a, a shooter or a nice bug with my, which with just my naked eyes. But then when I got the scope on him. You know, I could tell that he was outside the ears, nice buck, but like I was not going to take my time and like count the points and anything. You know, when you know, you know. Yep. And for and then and then the next step was he was quartering towards me because he ended up coming on a trail which went right underneath my tree, and the wind was blowing towards the bedding area, but it was crossing over that said trail, going where he was going. So. 
And I kind of subscribe that theory that when a, when a buck gets so close to you, even if he's not downwind, it's like they just know something's up. So, um, you know, I practice shooting my rifle throughout the year. I know what it does. I've been shooting the same rifle and the same grain bullet for, <laughs> I mean, tw- over 20 years. I've been shooting the same rifle. So I've taken quartering two shots, and, I, you know, I, and that's – one of the things I preach about people practice, you know, people should practice even rifles, but I put the bullet right between his right shoulder and his chest. And, you know, that seven mag went in and, you know, blew up the shoulder, the vitals. It actually, it didn't touch any of the, any of the guts or anything. And, And he absorbed the entire bullet. It didn't exit. He jumped up, did a J hook and crashed within 50 yards. And that, and that was it. And it was one of those times where like, it's like all of a sudden there's a buck, yeah. you know, I didn't see him. I didn't see him coming from a distance. I didn't see some young bucks and I got my fingers crossed and my heart's pumping, you know, waiting for that big buck to come out next. My, my heart was never really even going because it just happened so quick. And there, there were two bucks behind him. I didn't even really, I, I glanced at him. I think it was a spike or four point and six point. There could have been even a bigger buck behind him, but like I'm not taking any chances. I mean, South, <laughs> South, you see a nice buck. I mean, like yeah. I'm not, you know. So that and that, and that was it. It just, ha- I mean, it happened so quick. My adrenaline never really even had that chance to fire up. Yeah, I, that that is a great story. I love all the explanation and everything you kind of detailed there. It definitely drew me in. I I love just the reaction the having make this quick decision, you know, again, no questionable shot there, particularly with a rifle. I I appreciate you preaching and explaining that as well. The caliber that, that is a fantastic deer, by the way. I mean, that is a phenomenal buck. So congratulations. Like I'm impressed, um, the, the rack on that deer and, and obviously the body size of that deer. Uh, what would you, what would you guess would be his age? Um, so I, um, I'm, I'm, I've already dropped him off for, for shoulder mount. And so sure. when we shoot a buck for shoulder mount, I, I'm, I'm always reluctant even to, even to pull, pulling apart the jaw. <laughs> yeah, I, know. I just don't want to mess anything, especially for the photos, because once you open the jaw up, it'll stay open. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking he's four, he was 194 pounds. Um, and then based on, based on the weight and based on how I know what our age class bucks typically look, I have a hard time leaving. He's three. Um, so for me, it's kind of a process of elimination three. I don't think so. So I'm thinking it's probably four, um, but we'll have the jawbone pretty soon. But yeah, I mean that, you know, that's just, that's for us a very good mature South Carolina bug that, you know, you can pass on, but man, you better have, you better be the only one hunting in that area because that particular buck, like, like in our area, that bug, during, at least during the rut, he could be on four different properties yeah. easily. Yep. And, you know, it's just, you know, it, it's, you gotta, you know, do, you know, shoot what makes you happy. But yeah, I mean, that's, I, I was just blown away. And I'm thinking he's probably four, but I, what has me very intrigued about seeing finally seeing that jawbone is that his basis, and I know he's in velvet. You know, I know what people are going to say, but you get a lot of extra width on velvet on the tips of the main beam. The tips, you know, the tips have a lot of cushion on them. Yeah, yeah, on, the, on that growth, and especially like between the main beam and like the G two and G three, there can be a little extra you know, uh, velvet hanging, but on the basis, if you feel one, it's very thin. It's very thin. And, and also our bucks down here, they are, they're, they're losing their velvet right now. Yep. And so, um, usually by the first September, they're pretty much all, all hard horn. He, he lost a lot of his hair on the velvet had already come off. So, so, so the bases are pretty thin. If you grab them, I mean, you're, you're feeling the bumps on the bases. Anyways, they were they were six and six and a half inches. Wow, um, mass, wow. and it was the, in the mass. Wow. If you look, the that mass of the base was consistent from the brow tine to the G two, which that is. Wow. We'll get some antlers that have the mass of the base, but having the mass between the brow tine and the G two is not very common for us. 
So like that mass was just way more than it's way more than what we're typically see. So that's what has me thrown off about the age. Yeah, I agree. And I agree. It, yep. Because I, you know, I look at it as like that mass could have been extra points. I mean, he could have taken, I mean, you know, uh, you know, growing that bone, that extra mass could have been extra points, but it's sure. mass. That's like, yeah. I kind of subscribe to that theory. I did not come up with this. It's not a theory. It's an idea that the, the scoring for antlers should really be like, it should be like surf. It should be like, I've heard it described as like water displacement where you're dropping the antlers, the rack into, you're seeing how much surface area it takes up, you know, like the scoring system is really based on having more points, right. more points right. scoring, but, but, but you're not getting, but you've got all that bone that's not being measured, yeah. you know, between the measurements. I love, I love this. I love this concept. This is, this is definitely the next age stuff. I think, I think you're onto something for sure. Uh, I think a lot of people kind of uh, look past the, you know, the, the individual elements. I mean, you're talking about Coke can based you know, Coke can size bases on this deer's antler, you know, and you're thinking yeah. of yourself, that is incredible. And again, questioning his age at that point, I would be in the same predicament. And and I, I, I prescribe the same thing you do with shoulder mounts of being careful with the teeth and, you know, just, just, you don't want to disturb anything because you want that pristine mount. Uh, the other thing I want to add to your, your kind of equation is, is Mariah Borges has been on this and him and I've talked a lot about, you know, different, uh, different things. One of the things being is just measuring the pedicle, measuring that base and, and having that statistically available to you on an annual basis to do comparatives and just to see, well, if that was a five or six year old deer uh, and maybe it's just a genetic, you know, variation of that particular deer where it has more, you know, mass displacement at the base or, you know, throughout the antler. But it, it is interesting to have that those statistics and, you know, he threw some things out me at me saying, you know, he could, to some degree, make determinations. Now, he's not saying this publicly, but make some determinations of age class specifically by that measurement. And, and that, that's there. There's anomalies to that where we may be talking here, where this deer just its variation is such where it does have you know a specific you know uh, uh, affliction of having kind of larger base, and and then it doesn't isn't as displaced throughout the rest of the antler for that matter. It doesn't have the the time length, et cetera. But you know that was very obvious when I saw that deer. I was like, my goodness, that is a heck of a rack. And you can see that in, in obviously the picture that, that I saw. So uh, congratulations again. I mean, that's just an, an awesome deer, a great story. You've got this pedigree of shooting these deer early, and I'm not trying to jinx you going forward, but I know you're on Doe Patrol now. So what's next for you? So what's next uh, for us is um, we can start shooting does September 15th. Um, and I've mentioned it before, but that's just to give – you know, the fawns more time with their uh, mothers and, you know, uh, nursing everything. But our fawns right now, um, they're looking very healthy. And pretty soon they're going to start to lose their spots. Usually the spots are gone by mid-September. And um, so what we've been doing for a number of years now is just being very aggressive and trying to thin out the does once the season opened, basically late September. So we did a lot of hunting, you know, for the, you know, decent amount of hunting last week. And, um, we won't hunt again until probably the third week in September. So just kind of lay off some spots, go in and we've, you know, we invite some friends up and pretty much just load the property up and just, you know, um, try to thin out as many does as we can before October. That way we can have a little breathing room to where people can, you know, hunt the rod, still shoot some does, but you know, we don't have that pressure of, um, you know, if once you get behind the eight ball, on your doe harvest, when your target doe harvest, it's very, very, very hard. And we've learned that over the years that if you try to shoot them down the rut, you can, but they're being hunted too. You know, every buck is chasing them. You know, the young bucks that don't know what they're doing, the old bucks. And on top of that, these does are, you know, they are also running their own family. They've got a doe group that they're in. You know, they've got their own fawn. So these does have a lot going on. And, um, if you get behind the eight ball, it's very hard. It's very hard to get caught up. Yeah. And I understand that we've talked about that in the past and definitely a future discussion for us and how you make some of the decisions. So let me ask you point blank, how many does do you need to shoot this year? We are, uh, I mean, ideally it'd be nice if it was definitely North of 60, yep. maybe close to maybe close to 75. And I know in the past, 
people might have thought I was crazy as far as our deer density, but um, Clemson University, uh, they have a um, uh, obviously in South Carolina, and they have a lot of you know they do a lot of ag research in South Carolina, and so they wrapped up a deer density study in our county, actually pretty close to us um, last year, twenty twenty one, and the the research was trying to figure out deer populations in the depredation and how much how much loss the farmers are incurring because I've got some photos I took of cotton plants last week I need to post but these deer they are still eating these cotton plants I mean any kind of new growth that these cotton plants get they're snipping them off like like it was if it was soybeans and there's tons of food for them but the, my, my point is, is that we, we, we're in a very high deer density area. And so, you know, I, I, I knew that for a long time running our statistics and, and our hunter observation logs and we get those statistics. So, so I knew that was the case, but having that official research from Clemson kind of backs that up, you know, backs that up. And i tell you another piece that really kind of really, I really got, I really put, so I really started to connect the dots is that I've I read it's called actually it's right here in front of me producing quality whitetails. It's written by Al Brothers. He was a biologist out of Texas. And so Al Brothers was Joe Hamilton's mentor. Joe Hamilton, the founder yep. of QDMA, now NDA. Al Brothers was Joe Hamilton's mentor. And so this this, this book, Producing Quality Whitetails, was written, I think, back in the 50s. And it's amazing how much information in here is, like, still, I mean, it is spot on to today. And long story short, Joe Hamilton took those ideas and brought it to the South. And that's how Quality Deer Management Association started in South Carolina. But anyways, they, Al talks a lot about knowing when it comes down to doe harvest, You've got to first figure out your deer density. You've got to have some real observations, a spotlight survey, something to know your deer per square mile. And then when you're running these statistics, hunter observations, you know, you're recording, you know, I saw four does and two fawns, you know, break it down that way. You know, the season, you run your statistics and you've got your fawn recruitment. And you've got, and you also have your buck to doe ratio. Take 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 your buck to doe ratio on recruitment, and you should know how many deer you've got on your property, and basically how many deer are going to be recruited into the herd. The one factor you got to come up with, you know, average is just like natural mortality, and you know hunters. But when you have a high deer density, you have to, you've got a certain amount of deer that are being replaced every single year. So if you aren't meeting those high target harvest goals, your population is just going to continue to go up and up and up. So I, I, if anyone, it actually took me a while to find producing quality whitetails because it's out of print and I bought it on uh, uh, Amazon, but I, that was very eye opening as far as trying to, you know, really get breaking it down and doing it, doing it the right way as far as, you know, understanding uh, your, your deer herd. Yeah. And I think it's important because I think what we want to do in another podcast in the future is check in with you, see how you did with your quota, come up with, you know, why you got to the numbers that you got up to at that point, you know, and, and for everyone, you know, that sounds like a lot of deer. It's really not that many deer considering the landscape that he's working in and the density that, you know, I know that, that he's dealing with in his area. So, you know, don't be alarmed at that. In fact, I think that number sounds a little bit low to me, but again, I'm not in your area. I'm not making your decisions. And I, I don't know that all that goes into that. And that's still a lot of deer to harvest, by the way, you know, so there's a lot that goes into these, but your strategy and, and the net result and the volume of food that you have on the landscape and minimizing degrading, you know, food sources, like you talked about the agriculture situation there is, is really critical to the overall just health and quality of the deer. And mind you, we're talking about, you know, and let's assume this buck was a four and a half year old deer, whatever the case may be, it's, it's likely older than three and a half for that matter is you're seeing, you're starting to see quality increase exponentially and whatever exponentially yeah. means at this point, but you know, however you measure antler quality, et cetera, but you're starting to see the healthier deer increase and uh, expectedly some of these younger, you know, deer that, that are on the landscape, again, quality of antlers, et cetera, that thing all plays, that all plays into the, the end game that we're, we're trying to go after here is just, just having a healthier deer herd. So, you know, Mark, I, 
I don't want to dig too far into that, but I definitely think it's a discussion for, and I think people should start thinking about that on your landscape because statistically you need to pay attention to these things and really have a plan. It, it helps to uh, establish your vision yeah. of, you know, harvest strategy and, you know, what the landscape's going to look like and how you're trying to maintain things. It's hard to do on a small scale, but you can still have goals and objectives and it's starting to get other people on board and say, Hey, this really does work. And this is really meaningful. So I would suggest people start thinking more about that. Mark's suggestion of the book, you know, that type of information being part of the NDA and, and other organizations like that, I think are extremely helpful. So, you know, That's kind of, yeah, spot on John. And, and I, if I can have one, one more thing, very sure. short, sure. Oh, cause I know I can ramble is like, this is what we just talked about as far as does and everything. That's the side of whitetail conservation that doesn't, it, it gets talked about, but I think sometimes when people hear conservation and deer, they think, oh, well, deer are doing fine. There's deer everywhere. But, you know, we we have fragmented the land so much over the years that, you know, this is a real conservation issue. I mean, they might be thriving, but, you know, their breeding cycles are, have changed. And so, and then you factor in the whole, like, you know, big buck craze. And so, like, we're doing this, but what is our neighbor doing? Our, our neighbor just might be in the shooting bucks. No does. You know, so it, it's there's a lot of different factors that you know go into it, and it's you know it's something to it's something to pay attention to for sure. Like you said, yeah, it is, and that trend that you're talking about is ever present across the landscape. It's a bad trend, everybody. You know, think twice yeah. about that mindset. That's not the correct mindset. At least if you're trying to, you know, establish quality. I mean, I I, I will not go on a rant here, but I all my clients, anybody that's hired me, the first thing they say is. This guy talks about low deer populations. That's 99% of my focus is how to reduce the deer population in some of these areas. Now, some of the areas that I, I work in, there's, the deer populations are very small. You know, there may be five to six deer per square mile. But, but that's a different example. Um, in some areas that I'm working in, there's a high deer population. The strategies are completely different. And it starts, it's a foundational issue that you have to remedy. And I would suggest everyone take take light of that. It's really critical to, to you know, to Mark's point here. So, Mark... Um, Everyone follow you. Uh, I know you're on Instagram. Uh, you're a writer for Meat Eater. Uh, I've looked at a lot of the articles. You've got great content. It's awesome. You know, you've got your consulting, your real estate business, and it's just great hearing from you. I'm happy that to have you back on. I'm happy to talk about your success. And let's let's not like have a big gap like we have, we've had recently, and so we can stay engaged. And, and hopefully, you continue to have a great season. And everybody that comes to camp does well, and you hit your dough quota. So that's my hope for you this season. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. It's always a blast, and I, and I greatly, greatly thank you for this opportunity to be on the podcast. I, 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 great, I, I enjoy your content. It's good stuff, and uh, I like your approach to everything. All right, good, man. Thank you so much for following us, and then we'll continue to follow you. So uh, more to come from us in the future. That sounds great. All I right. appreciate it. Talk soon. Bye. All right. Thanks, John. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.